0: people have to understand that something is going to get us. That's what we're thinking. Something's going to get us. And if it's not the pandemic, it's racism. And if it's not racism, if it's not that, then it's bad healthcare. And if it's not that, it's that we live in a food desert. And if it's not that, it's something else. It's always going to be something. And so for many of us, there's just a level of fatigue and exhaustion that says, sure, I would like to make sure that I'm completely safe and 100 percent protected from all coronavirus risk and, and making sure that I'm protecting my family. But also I want to protect my family from the silence and from the virality of racism, which has existed in our country for 400 years with no cure.
1: From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. This week, Beliefs welcomes Jamar Tisby, president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, and Reverend Tyler Burns, lead pastor of New Dimensions Christian Center in Pensacola, Florida. Together they host the podcast Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a dynamic church. Our guest host this week is RNS national reporter, Adele Banks.
2: Welcome to Beliefs. Thank you for joining us. I first want to ask uh, each of you, is it possible, uh, first Jamar, to sum up how you as a Black Christian man are dealing with all that has happened in the wake of the death of George Floyd?
3: How I'm dealing with it is takes multiple forms. One and I can't emphasize this enough, is black mental health. I see, quote unquote, uh, a therapist because it's virtual right now. And I make sure to be able to to process this with a professional. Uh, probably the best habit I've picked up in, in the recent weeks is just regularly exercising, you know, getting those endorphins, burning off that stress. I try also to mute And block prodigiously on social media. I don't have time for foolishness right now. Um, We're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of depression era level economic crisis. And we're dealing with an assault, the ongoing assault on black bodies and black life. So I really don't have the bandwidth nor the desire to deal with people who refuse to see my humanity or, or, or understand racism as so many have unpacked it over the years. So those are some ways I'm coping and dealing with this moment.
0: I would definitely echo everything that Jamar talked about on a practical and therapeutic, mental and emotional level. I, I would say though that it's important to approach this theologically with the understanding that as Black Christian man, what's, in, what's implicit within your question is that we, we feel this in our bodies, that there's a level of trauma that's taking place uh, from our corporate observance, from our corporate grief, from our corporate lament, um, because we don't have a disembodied theology. We do not have a theology that separates soul and body, that believes that God comes to redeem our souls, but doesn't care about our bodies. And so I think it's important for us to root it in theology and to root it in the reality um, that we feel intense grief, anguish, and what we feel in our bodies is actually deeply theological. And I think the way that has helped me to work through this is actually rooted in the Black church. And the Black church is known as a place of emotive lament, as a place of grief. And so I've tried to find outlets in addition to the the therapy, in addition to um, watching what I eat, exercising, watching who I'm allowing to speak um, into me on social media, I think it's also important that I've tried to create space for black church practices as simple as shouting and as simple as, as weeping and as simple as um, as much as possible interacting with my the theology behind my emotions. And just because I have intense emotions of anger and um, sorrow and you know fury and rage, I, I want to I want it to be refined rage as much as possible, but just because I have those emotions, I actually want to enter into those. Um, and I want to allow God to enter into those as well. So that's definitely the Christian side of, of my blackness that really comes out in, that, in, in, in times like these.
2: Thank you for that. Um, Jamar, you wrote a recent Religion News Service commentary about how people naturally do one of three things when they face a threat, fight, flight, or freeze. How are you personally not freezing at this time?
3: Yeah, so that's uh, a paradigm that comes from uh, mental health care and what we do chemically when we face a threat. And so fight is we want to confront it, flight is you want to run away from it. But oftentimes we experience the freeze, which is this paralysis, and we don't know what to do. Our system is overloaded. The way to fight the freeze, if you will, and have productive action is through a model I developed called the Arc of Racial Justice, which stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. And so as we're thinking about, well, what do I do in this moment? How do I fight for racial justice and against racism? Well, one is building your awareness. And that's doing things like listening to this podcast, reading books, watching documentaries. Um, but also we, we got to move beyond that. Um, we also need relationships. Relationships. And so uh, a lot of times that we are approaching this issue in the abstract and it's just philosophical, but, the, but we need flesh and blood and, and human people to attach, uh, to understand their humanity. Uh, it's hard to love somebody you don't know. The problem is, especially with, with white evangelical Christians, is they tend to stop there because they think that the problem of racism is primarily how I feel and act individually towards someone else. Uh, So, so if I don't, you know, that's, that's things like using a racial slur, excluding someone from your business, those kinds of overt actions. So if that's the problem, then the solution is, well, then I'm going to treat people nicely. And some of my best friends are black. And so I'm not a racist and I'm not part of the problem. What they fail to realize is that racism operates on a systemic level too. And so we actually have to look at your policies and I'm just going to speak real bluntly here if in the midst of all of these protests and uprisings that we're seeing now you're not reevaluating how you vote, who you vote for and what policies you support, you can miss mm-hmm. me. You can stay silent and stay on the sidelines because if you're not going to be part of the solution then get out of our way. But the 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 idea here is that racism doesn't need your personal feelings to operate. Racism can operate on a systemic and institutional level which is you know, why, why are Christian colleges and universities, boards of trustees, overwhelmingly white? And then what happens when they go to search for the new college president or, or, or additional faculty? Nobody's setting out in that, in that instance to be intentionally racist. But just because of the way the system is set up, it's going to perpetuate racial inequalities. So those are some examples. But I'll end with this. It doesn't have to be big. If you're new to this, take the next step.
2: So Tyler, how do you see um, this unfreezing needing to happen, in particular, perhaps with white people, white people of faith that you work with?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think that's a a really interesting question because so much of what we have felt over the past six or seven years is a frozenness, not in times of crisis, but in times of supposed peace. And what tends to happen is I'm not so much concerned about who's unfreezing now. I would like to see people unfreeze when there are no hashtags, when there are no news stories. Um, And as a pastor and as someone who is collaborating with white Christians on a regular basis, I sense that many of them decide selectively when they would like to freeze and unfreeze. And I would prefer, uh, I know so many black Christians would prefer uh, for that to stop. And that means putting in place systems that directly address the racism that is present and evident and flourishing within so many white churches and white christian spaces and that means we have to take a direct approach and the freezing now tends to happen in the way that people would you know maybe put up a social media post or lament or even listen to a podcast and educate themselves or text someone and say that i feel bad but what the unfreezing that needs to happen is a systemic unfreezing systemic action um, and that takes root, as Jamar was mentioning, in so many of our places of power, in the way that we spend our money, in so many different areas. And so uh, the freeze right now is, um, the unfreezing right now is fine. And I think that's that's good. It's good for empathy. It's good for sympathy. It's kind of moving the needle and pressing the conversation. But if we if we go back to freezing again in a few weeks or a few months when the new cycle has moved on, we'll have made no true progress. And so I need people to to freeze in times, unfreeze in times of peace, not just in times of crisis.
2: Thank you for that, both of you. So there seems to be this sort of visible, palpable change in how a variety of people are responding to the current headlines and the released videos about violence, particularly from police officers against Black people. And I'm wondering if you can speak to either of you to the why now. First, Jamar, why, why is this happening now?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really important question because we have seen so much change in the past five years or so. So late 2014 into 2015, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement become a topic of national conversation. But what has happened since then? We've seen primarily the election of this president, I think, has uh, stressed people out whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. This is just nonstop news, most of it, not all that great from the White House. And so that's put a stress and a strain, but especially in terms of the, the racial climate. You add on top of that, a pandemic that we're in the midst of, which has also become partisan and politically polarized, where like wearing a face mask or not wearing one is now a political act instead of uh, an issue of health or science. And then you add on top of that, um, the the recent spate, of uh, discrimination and and uh, brutality against Black people because I think what happened uh, George Floyd's murder was graphic and visceral and ugly and it should have never happened but that came along. After we found out about Breonna Taylor and her being murdered in her own house where the police raided in the middle of the night, but they had the wrong address. That's after we found out about Christian Cooper, a black man who's bird watching in Central Park and had the police called on him as if he was physically threatening this woman. That's after we found out about Ahmad Arbery, who was murdered while he was out for a jog and literally chased down and hunted down um, and murdered. So, so it was the accumulation of events and, and this sense that nothing's changing. You know, we've come, we've had all these protests, we've had all these marches, we've, we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum. And I think it's the accumulation of all that and the landscape has changed and is different. And that's why you're seeing this, um, these uprisings nationwide and even internationally at this moment.
2: Yes, the international aspect is something that is, uh, is also quite fascinating. Tyler, um, I'm wondering what you think of responses you've seen from Christian leaders and lay people, including white people in your community and beyond, is it different? Are they different than a month ago, a year ago, even?
0: Well, I think that's a great question, and I would say that there is some difference. Um, you know, I was thinking back recently to 2012 with Trayvon Martin and 2014 with with uh, Mike Brown, and those very public killings. The response from white Christians and white evangelicals was either non-existent or maybe perhaps exploratory. Um, uh, mildly sympathetic. But now what we're seeing is even in the midst of rioting and looting that many white churches and, and leaders are saying, well, we have to understand that riots are the language of the unheard, as Dr. King would say. And so there's there's greater conversations. There's a sense in which people are feeling pressured to say something, which is a healthy thing. Uh, but what I would say is that the reason why that shift has taken place is, is because people of color over the course of the past seven to eight years, have put themselves at great personal, spiritual, psychological, emotional, and mental risk to force the church to say something, to force the church to do something. And we have to understand that we're talking about progress from the stance of statements, not of actions, not of policies. And so what I'm not seeing so much, what I'm seeing that's that's healthy is, is the speaking. I'm not seeing so much is the policy changing. What has changed about the nature and the DNA of an organization? What has changed about the functional systems and strategies within a church? Are we still playing patty cake with white supremacy? Are we still desiring and pushing to end it, to dismantle it in all its forms, especially in our churches? And so I think there is definitely a change in the way that the perception is and the way that the sympathy is and the way that our statements are being made. And that's a positive. I don't want to push past that. But what I do want to say is that now, you know, as as the scripture says, we cannot just simply love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in action as well. And that's what we need are actions practically, tangibly that address the core of white supremacy in the church.
2: I, I believe I've seen that um, black church groups and others have started to call and continue to call for policy changes, as you've mentioned. Jamar, is there anything um, specific that you can see happening soon in the realm of policy as opposed to just the, um, the words as, um, as Tyler pointed out.
3: Will it happen? I have no idea. Can it (laughs) it happen? It is possible. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, the mayor just announced that they were defunding. It was only maybe about 3% of the total budget, but it's a start defunding their police department. Um, which is a beginning, because then you can use those funds, which for LA amounted to like 100 and 150 million. Uh, you can divert those resources to what we know prevents encounters with police, like mental health care, uh, better systems for reentry for formerly incarcerated people, etc. So there are organizations out there now doing this work, like like Campaign Zero, that that has suggestions. Um, uh, there's a new website. Uh, that was just launched. Eight can't wait. The number eight can't wait. dot org, which is talking about policing practices, in particular, like the physical practices, the holds and the moves that they can undertake when they encounter someone physically, and which ones need to be stopped. But but churches, look, I said this before. If it's not affecting your politics and your policies, then then you need to step out of the way and not hinder it. So we can't wait till November. For the election, what we have to be doing right now is be working for for mail-in voting because confidence to go out publicly um, in the midst of this pandemic, which I don't think is going to be eradicated in a few months, is going to be very low. That's going to depress turnout, which is going to have a disproportionate effect on the people who have historically been disenfranchised, like Black people. So we need to be working for those things now. A very simple policy that we can be supporting is. uh, HR 40, which is a bill to establish a commission to study reparations. So this is not actually paying reparations, but is at least getting a commission together to say, uh, at a federal level, what we're taking this seriously. And then at the local level, we need to be getting involved. At the very least, we need to be talking to police chiefs and, and mayors and seeing what is the deal? How is it being practiced here? Do you, can you name right now your local district attorney? Because if you can't, you are missing a key player in the criminal justice or injustice system, because these are the people who have the power to extend plea deals, to recommend sentences, to bring charges at all against people. And so these are some of the ways that we need to think systemically about reform and revolution.
2: So some of the discussion about policy and changes stems from the personal experiences of the people that are calling for those kinds of changes. So I feel like I have to ask each of you, starting with Tyler, if there have been recent events in your own experience uh, with police, positive or negative, that inform how you approach this topic, how you talk with children and your families, um, if you're worried about them, if they're old enough to leave your homes, um, what, how does what you've experienced uh, fit into all of this?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think you know it's it's also extremely traumatizing to you know for a lot of us to to think through that. But I think it's important to to be honest and admit um, that have I had um, testy um, exchanges with police officers? Absolutely. Have I had a gun pulled on me um, within the past six years um, by a police officer? Yes, I have. Um, and, and not just the nature of how we inter, interact and intersect with with police and with law enforcement, but I was called the N-word in broad daylight um, in a department store. I talk about it um, on, on our podcast um, in 2016, 2017, uh, a few years ago, um, as a grown man, uh, not provoking, no argument, nothing happened um, that I would, I would do to deserve that. So my, my experience with law enforcement is mixed in the sense that um, I have an uncle who has served on law enforcement for over 20 years, uh, trained SWAT team, uh, SWAT teams in, in, in Panama City, Florida. Um, he's come and done Know Your Rights trainings for our youth. Uh, we've worked with the National Association of Black Law Enforcement Officers, worked with the FBI uh, to do forums and panels. And those are things that you know I thought were very helpful at the time. And now I look back and say, maybe they weren't as helpful as I thought they were. Um, but we definitely, as, as Black Christians and as the Black church community, we've leaned into a pragmatic approach to dealing with law enforcement officers, recognizing that many of them are in our, our pews. Many of them are in the seats of our church. They're are congregants, but they're also real people that we have to, to love and interact with. But the problem is when our relationships with them start to cloud our analysis of the systemic problems that they continue to replicate, that's the issue. And so we've we've worked with making sure that our, our young people and our, our youth before I was lead pastor, I was youth pastor for 9 years at our church. So we worked tangibly to say this is what you do, this is how you can know your rights. But the problem is, Adele, there there are not a systemic policies and even in our sheriff's department, there's there was an argument and there was a fight and a delay about body cams in Pensacola. It was body cams in in a neighboring city, Milton, they don't have body cams. So as our as our kids go out and interact, we cannot just view this as a relational problem. We cannot hug uh, police brutality away. We must legislate it out and we must provide accountability that is strict and fierce so that protects our children and protects our families.
2: appreciate your sharing. Sorry to hear about what you have gone through. Jamar, would you have anything to add about personal experience shaping how you're approaching these issues
3: like the traumatic encounters that i've had throughout my entire life as a black man in america shaping my perspective on this that kind of a thing yeah any
2: way to <laughs> that up, i realize that is super challenging
3: oh no it's uh um it's like i need people to feel that it's like all-encompassing it's comprehensive um that literally, you know, we—I often use the 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 phrase, you know, every time I step out of the door, or walk out of my house. But the reality is, not even in your own house are you safe, right? We we learned that with Breonna Taylor, um, among others. Uh, and so, what what I think is hard for a lot of white people to feel is the thought that you are constantly under surveillance. So this is this is one of the historic yes, aspects, yes. right? Is that. Um, Black bodies have always been policed and controlled and patrolled. So, in 1850, one of the things that led to the Civil War, Fugitive Slave Act, which meant if you by chance crossed the Mason-Dixon escaped from slavery, they now had a national law in place that said you could be recaptured and and sent Back down the river, as they would say, referring to the Mississippi River, and uh that meant there was no place in the u s where you you were safe um as a as a formerly enslaved person, and sometimes they got folks who who never were enslaved, but they were black, so they fit the description and guess what you gone down uh after the Civil War, when towns and cities began establishing formal standing police forces which they didn't often have prior to emancipation uh they would go out on, um, uh, they would pass the black codes and and laws like vagrancy acts, which said, if you were a black person found minding your own business just out somewhere, and you didn't have a paper that showed that you were gainfully employed by a white person, guess what? You could be fined. And if you couldn't pay the fine, you could be jailed. And if you were in jail long enough, you could be uh, leased out as a convict in convict leasing, right? And, and so- Here's the thing about it. You didn't even have to be a police officer to catch someone on these black codes, which breeds a, a a culture of white people thinking that they can dictate the when, the where, the how of when of where black people show up. And that continues on to this present day with me and my group of friends who are all black and Latino being followed at the at the arcade, being pulled over. Multiple times as a teenager and i 'm quote unquote the good kid, which by the way it doesn 't matter what your behavior is if you face brutality you didn't earn that or deserve that um you don 't have to be a straight a student to be worthy of uh dignity in your interaction with the police, but it didn't matter because to them i wasn 't a Christian who was one of the leaders of my youth group i wasn 't a uh, a student who had a high g p a and was on his way to Notre Dame. I was just another black kid, and that's what white people don't understand they 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 think hey i'm john i'm sarah i'm i'm whoever. I'm an individual no no, no, we get treated as a group, we have to speak for our group, we have to stand for our group, and we get we get we get all the disadvantages as a group, no matter what our individual achievements identities stories backgrounds et cetera
2: I appreciate both of you sharing that and it's um really good of you to be willing to let people understand more about this from a personal point of view. I wanted to ask Tyler about this issue of the protests that you're involved with in Pensacola. And all of these protests are coming in the midst of COVID-19. And there are these concerns, you know, as it disproportionately affects African Americans, um, that when you have these two things intersecting, possible coronavirus and protests, that this is going to just be yet another Problem ahead of us, and I'm just wondering how you, as a clergy person, dealing with this, choose to march now despite those dangers. How you work around those, if you can, in any way?
0: No, it's it's a really interesting question that people have asked, and it's definitely something that I have uh, considered and and am you know continuously working through. One of the the benefits is scientifically there is at least some proof that the coronavirus travels um, much quicker and much more deadly. It's much more deadly spread um, in indoor facilities and obviously touching surfaces and things of that nature. And then the aerosolized nature of everything that if you're outside and if you have a mask on, if you're able to keep some sort of social distance, that it helps. Um, Is it difficult? Absolutely. Is it something that we're concerned with? Of course. Um, we're, we're taking specific measures. I basically don't wear the same clothes. If I go to a uh, protest, I don't wear the same clothes again. <laughs> you know, I just have to put those in the wash immediately and scrub before I can hug my kids and, and kiss my wife. But people have to understand that something is going to get us. That's what we're thinking. Something's going to get us. And if it's not the pandemic, it's racism. And if it's not racism, if it's not that, then it's bad health care. And if it's not that, it's that we live in a food desert. And if it's not that, it's something else. It's always going to be something. And so for many of us, there's just a level of fatigue and exhaustion that says, sure, I would like to make sure that I'm completely safe and 100% protected from all coronavirus risk and, and making sure that I'm protecting my family. But also I want to protect my family from the silence and from the virality of racism which has existed in our country for 400 years with no cure. So it's basically like a, it's a choose pick your poison. Yes, we know that there is a risk and yes we want to to take those precautions, but we have to say something we don't have a choice because if if the pandemic doesn't get us racism sure will. That's just how we feel. And so from a black christian perspective, there there comes a time when even and again, I just want to say this again, black christians, black and brown christians have been putting themselves at great risk over the past seven to eight years, and this is a continuation of that risk. It's a continuation of a risk to stand in front of people and say, we demand our dignity. Our children's lives quite possibly could depend on it. And so we're willing to put ourselves at risk to make sure that we receive justice and to make sure that the system changes. And so that's a Black Christian perspective. It's definitely something that's, that there's no easy answers to it. And everyone who doesn't uh, observe those protests and stays inside. They're not less of 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 justice fighters or justice seekers because of it. Not less of believers because of it. But for me, I choose to to take a stand so that when my children ask, "Where were you after George Floyd?" I can show them a picture. I can say, "I was right there," and you can know that. And that's in your that's in your legacy. That's in your your heritage. That's in your, in your lineage. And I want you to stand the exact same way.
2: And you have little ones, so you'll be able to do that for them when they're a little older.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, Jamar, um, Tyler just mentioned that the word exhaustion, and I appreciate your participating in this podcast and know that you have had other interviews. And I just do wonder, are you exhausted in general or even spiritually exhausted?
3: It comes in waves. Um, there are moments when I feel that way. Um, on a day like today, I'm energized uh because i know there's a lot we're up against but there's a lot we can do and that's part of my heritage as a black person in america and as a black christian we've always been up against daunting odds from lynching in the era of jim crow to being exploited for our labor in the era of race based chattel slavery to even now being hunted down and what many would call lynched by police. We've always faced these odds. It's exhausting dealing with the people who refuse to see the reality. That's what's most exhausting. Um the reality itself is tiring. But when people want to deny that reality and say that oh it's about, you know, property damage, it's about the the way the protest is done. Y'all didn't like Colin Kaepernick kneeling. You didn't like king 's peaceful protesting because that got him assassinated, uh, and you don 't like any way that we protesting that 's the part that 's exhausting, uh, but at the same time, I look back to the old saints and to the ancestors and to the agency and to the action that they took and um, like I said' day to day so so you know there are signs of progress we 're seeing multiracial coalitions right now we 're seeing um Asian, people of Asian descent, people of Latin descent uh, coming alongside us in this moment. We're seeing uh, an incredible number of white people uh, being catalyzed in this moment. And that's great. Um, I think there will be days when the exhaustion sets in because after all this activity and energy, what's really going to change? You know, what, what are the systemic and ongoing changes that we've uh, been able to achieve? And, and when we get more perspective on that, I'll probably be exhausted again. Um, but I'm trying to conserve my energy, especially uh, by by giving very little time and attention to the people who, if you don't see it now, I don't know if you ever will. And we've got more work to do. So God bless.
2: Thank you for answering that. So um, Jamar has written about the feeling of helpless, helplessness that um, people of color and white people may feel at times like the ones we're facing now. And he suggested ways to overcome that. But I wanted to end this conversation asking about hopefulness. And Tyler, first, I want to ask you as a person of faith, do do you have hope? And if so, why or how do you have hope?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think there is definitely a feeling of exhaustion, as Jamar mentioned, and there is a frustration as I've talked about, and there's a fury and there's an indignance and there's a helplessness and a hopelessness at times that I feel but I think it's important to acknowledge that the history of our people has always been the feelings, those feelings of despair alongside the feeling of hope. Um, Brian Stevenson talks about this when he says, hopelessness is the enemy of justice, right? So he says that hopelessness actually leads you towards injustice. Um, And Black Christians in the American context have always had this duality, this ability to endure suffering, yet to look at each other and say, um, hold on just a little while longer. You know, so we've had, we can say, as you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. You know, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Those things exist in duality. Yes, we are feeling exhausted yet we have not given up. Yes, we do feel tired, yet we're going to continue speaking. Yes, we do. Uh, we, we feel afraid, yet we will move forward with courageous, brave action because that is what the people who have gone before have done and they have paved the way for us and they've they've created this duality that we exist again embodied in our full humanity. And so we feel the frustration and the angst and the sadness and, and the disturbance yet we will not allow it to drown us because future generations depend on us. Um, and so that's where you know, our hope in the Christian experience lies in, in the idea that, that God is coming back, that Jesus is coming back and he will deliver justice. Yet we do not just sit and simply wait for that. We work to, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we have committed ourselves to doing. And so in our action, we find hope, we find collaboration, we find co-belligerence, uh, we find fellowship, and, and we keep our, our eyes on that prize, as the old saints would say, and we hold on.
3: I, I just love the way they, Tyler put it, that, that they exist side by side. These are not things that happen one at a time but that, uh, you know, we titled our our first national conference for the witness, the Joy and Justice Conference. And the idea behind that is that Black people have found ways to pursue joy and justice at the same time. And the, the, the pursuit of justice implies the presence of injustice. And the pursuit of joy implies the presence of sorrow. But you can see this in Negro spirituals. You can see this in blues music and jazz music and hip hop music. You can see all of the ways that we have taken what white supremacy and white people have given us. And and in, in, in we've created something out of that, which is not to say that this stuff is good. We shouldn't be suffering this way. But 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 when it is present, we're not going to lie down and and succumb to it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take breaks. It doesn't mean we don't pace ourselves. So I don't want Black people to hear this and feel like, I'm tired. Oh, I got to I got to get up right now. Mm. It's a marathon. Some you start sometimes you start slow, sometimes you sprint and pick up the pace. Uh sometimes you need to take a water break. Whatever it might be, we need to take care of ourselves because we need you. We need the people who are 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 going to be fighting this racism and we need you around for the long haul. So pace yourself, but at the same time, you know, we can't wait for just one one thing at a time, we got to do two things at a time. We got to fight and have faith, and so that's where we are. And uh, you know, don't do it alone is my last word, um, especially for Black folks who are in the midst of predominantly white environments, whether at the workplace or especially in your congregation. It's especially hard right now, and that's okay because you're going to be around a lot of white people who say, oh, we need you. Can I pick your brain? Can we just, can you help us through? This? If you want to, great. But if you need to take a break, if you need to listen to some it's easier than ever to attend another church right now because you don't have to go anywhere. Just turn on Facebook Live or YouTube or whatever it might be. And if you need to hear some of that good old time religion, then that's fine too. Take care of yourself because you're here for a purpose and we need you.
2: Is there anything that either of you two would like to add?
3: I would just say this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, so folks listening, you know, obviously this is not the one thing that you should listen to. There's there's a lot. So you can visit our website, thewitnessbcc.com. We have literally hundreds of articles. We've been here, y'all. We've been doing this work for some years. And you can access that without having to ask your, you know, one Black friend or person of color and um, perhaps being a burden on them. Um, you can follow Tyler and I on uh, social media uh, at Burns 23 for Tyler, at Jamar Tisby for me. And obviously there are tons of books and resources out there. So the only thing I'm saying is a lot of times um, white people in particular like to treat racial justice like a light switch that they can flick on and off. I'm challenging you to keep it on and to keep it on after the cameras stop rolling, after the headlines uh, stop coming, to keep it on, uh, gather with some community. Keep it on together, but the only way we win this fight is, like Tyler said, to fight the freeze beyond this moment. And so that's what I'm I'm encouraging folks to do.
2: Thank you, Tyler. You get the last word.
0: <laughs> well, um, I, I think Jamar summed it all up. I would just say, as a pastor, you know, I think pastorally, I think theologically, and you know, one of the things that I believe is so important, especially if there are white pastors who are who are listening and tuning into this, and white Christian leaders it is important to emphasize to um, our churches, especially our white evangelical churches, that there has to be a level of intensity and ferocity here um, that addresses white supremacy on the scale that has been instituted in our country. And one of the things that I'm telling people is, is half measures are not enough. Cliches will not do. Dr. King talked about it in a letter uh, from a Birmingham jail where he said, you know, most of the time, what 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 the white moderate are doing and they're saying are sanctimonious, or pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. It is not enough for us to simply say nice things at this moment. There has to be a ferocity and an intensity, um, and and a commitment and a passion and a strategy that lasts beyond this moment. And, and black people are tired, and we're going to continue. That's just the history of who we are. But we cannot do this alone. It's impossible for us to do this alone. And so we need co-laborers and we need allies. And if you are, and if that's what you desire to do, especially in the Christian space, then there has to be the full weight of your theology, the full weight of what you understand about the scriptures and understand about God uh, that comes to bear in this moment. And so if there's not ferocity, we'll be back here again in a year or two years, or maybe, God forbid, sooner than that. And uh, so I hope that everyone takes it seriously, Uh, People are actually literally dying um, and we should act with with that level of intensity to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore.
2: I can't thank you both enough. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us and helping uh, beliefs to to um, share your messages.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
1: Our guests this week were Jamar Tisby and Reverend Tyler Burns, hosts of the podcast Pass the Mic. Many thanks to our guest host, RNS national reporter Adele Banks. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, please review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University in New York. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.